Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. So we're going to continue. We started just briefly with this series uh, last week, looking at, uh, well, Jesus. I mean, it's a profound title, isn't it? Simply Jesus. But our hope is that... um, we can go a bit deeper. Well, you might say, hang on a minute, I know all about Jesus. He's the person who came and died on a cross for me and forgave my sins and now I can come to church and God isn't angry at me anymore. That's kind of a, sometimes a compressed version of what Christians think Christianity is. But actually, to follow Jesus on one hand is incredibly simple, but equally, to follow Jesus is equally incredibly profound. And uh, sometimes we need to just delve a little bit deeper into the person of Jesus, to really uh, give our Christian faith some deeper texture, understanding, uh, and I I think particularly identity, because God came to give you a new identity. Scripture says that um, the old has gone and the new has come. Or a very simple verse in Colossians 3.3, you died, you died, and you're now hidden in Christ. Okay? So these are profound simple phrases we find in scripture and we're going to try and dig a bit deeper over the next few weeks to find out what that really means. You can think of it a bit like this way, let's imagine Keely and I are up in Birmingham and we've never been to Whitstable before and we pull over at the side of the road, we've forgotten our phones, we haven't got sat nav and we stop and say to someone, how did you get to Whitstable? And they say, well you sort of go southeast, keep on heading down and you'll hit it eventually. If you get wet you've gone too far. Now on one hand, that's absolutely true. That's, that's essentially what you would have to do to go from Birmingham to Whitstable. You'd head southeast and hope you didn't go too far, drive off the cliffs, and uh, you may get there. The signage is pretty good. But it might have also helped if that person who's given us directions might say, actually, there's a very big city in the way, and if you hit that city at the wrong time of day, you're going to spend a lot of time stationary rather than moving. Equally, one thing we didn't know, we nearly got caught out when we came down here, we we were so enamoured with the bridge (laughs) that we didn't see the toll signs. So we were sitting in someone's house that evening who was putting us up and said, have you paid the toll? We said, toll? What toll? He said, you came over the bridge. We said, yeah, we came over the bridge. He said, ah, you've got 24 hours to pay your £2.50, whatever it is, otherwise you get a hefty fine. And thankfully he went online and he paid the fine for us. No, the uh, sorry, not the fine. We didn't get a fine. He paid the toll. Absolutely right. So sometimes a bit more detail in the directions would be helpful. And so what we're going to try and do over the next few weeks is put a bit more direction uh, and context and culture around the person of Jesus, and and hopefully our faith will be better uh, for it. One of the biggest challenges that we've got is that we all have a pair of these. Oh, you're all crisp men. I should wear these more often, but I do try and get away with not wearing them. These are my driving glasses, okay? I've got a, a small prescription. You're all nice and sharp. But you, we all wear a set of these. We all wear a set of lenses. Maybe not physical lenses like these, but you all wear a set of cultural lenses. You've been raised in a certain way. You've been raised in a certain place. You've been raised with certain traditions. And these all have the effect of giving you a lens. It's, it can be called a paradigm, Okay, it's the way you see the world. You've got a paradigm, and that's how you see the world. And the thing is, you can't, you can't recognise this paradigm because it's transparent to who you are. Uh, 
And the way you see Jesus equally is through your paradigm. So you see Jesus through your lenses. And what we're going to try and do again through this series is help each other take off the lenses to see Jesus more clearly, to get a better view of what he was like. Because Jesus came to a first century Jewish culture. He didn't come to a modern Western culture that we live in. He came to a first century Jewish culture. And that, and that meant his hearers, the people who he was talking to and connecting with, saw the world very differently to the way you and I see the world. But when we read our Bibles, we read it through our Western lens and go, oh, yeah, I understand that, I understand that. But actually, sometimes we don't get the real depth of what's taking place because we put our Western lenses onto it. The first century Jews, they saw the world even very differently from the first century Romans or the first century Greeks. They had a very different worldview. And it was into this worldview that Jesus began to speak and connect and uh, do all the wonderful things that he did. So we're going to try and get some fresh glasses, or glasses, if you want to will, um, so we can see Jesus better. We get a better view and understanding of who he is uh, and who he was and what he did. But first of all, a film clip. Okay, so let's dim the lights, put the sound right up. Anyone see if you recognise this film? She's not going to let us out. That's why Keely won't go on a cruise, okay? Because <laughs> she's convinced that out there, that's what's going to happen. You know. Anyone recognise the film? Perfect Storm. What was the year? Tricky. I'm hopeless at this. I always think the films are much younger than they are. 2003? What, what do you have over here? 2000, correct answer? Okay, well done. Perfect Storm. It was a great... Dramatic movie. It's based on a true story of a fishing boat called the Andrea Gale, who went out um, back in 1991. Uh, a fishing vessel went out uh, into the Atlantic, 500 miles out into the Atlantic, and was caught in what was called the perfect storm. The weather conditions came together to form an extraordinarily powerful storm. There was a, a cold front that came down from the Canadian border. Uh, the locals called this the Halloween Nor'easter. What a great name for a for a storm, and that was powerful enough to put the fishing boat in difficulty. But then there was um, another wind that combined with that, and a hurricane that was losing energy came and dolled the final piece into the jigsaw. And this incredibly powerful weather effect converged on the Andrea Gale, and uh, she was lost with all hands. She was never found. Uh, no bodies were ever found. She was completely wiped off the face of the earth in that perfect storm. And as we think about the time that Jesus came into back in that first century, we're going to use this perfect storm analogy to describe some of the factors that were taking place for Jesus as he came into that situation, into that culture. Because there was a gale blowing, there was a storm, there was a hurricane, and Jesus came into this. 
So I'm going to use this metaphor to describe just the cultural setting that Jesus found himself in. Well, the first thing, there was a gale blowing from the west, and that was the Roman Empire. Rome had become this incredibly powerful, well, it was a superpower in, in the first century. Uh, it had been steadily increasing its influence, its extension, and its power, and it, it was moving across the whole known world. And uh, this had been happening over the past two or three hundred years. Rome would be getting stronger and stronger. Uh, Thirty years before the birth of Jesus, Julius Caesar who actually was a conquering uh, general, brought his army back into Rome to establish power, to overthrow the Republic. And he began to declare that he was divine. He was Julius Caesar, the divine. He was of God. He was born of God. And uh, the traditionalists were furious with him, so they assassinated him. Et tu, Brutus, you remember? You know your history? Good. And this threw Rome into a long and bloody civil war. And there was only one winner from that, and... uh, This was a man called Octavian. He was Caesar's adopted son. And Octavian came forth as the ruler. And he took the title Augustus, which means whether Caesar had indeed been divine, and he was equally divine. And so he was now Augustus Octavian Caesar. And it literally meant he was the son of God. Interesting. He declared himself to be the son of God. And if you ask anybody... In the Roman Empire, if you walked around and went down to Egypt or anywhere that Rome had outlying provinces and said, who is the son of God? They would have said, Octavian. Octavian is the son of God. He's the declared, that was written on the, on the coinage, declaring that he was divine. And the Roman uh, propaganda machine went into overdrive and began to uh, inscribe on various monuments and places that this was the divine Son of God, Augustus Caesar. And they would go and declare the good news. Good news. Augustus Caesar is your new emperor. He's going to bring peace and justice and security. He's the son of God. Do you see some echoes that are forming here, historically, into what Jesus walked into? And this was the first of the elements that was right there in this first century culture that Jesus found himself Rome needed the Middle East, it needed the grain from Egypt, it's had lots of hungry mares to feed. In Rome it couldn't sustain uh, its need for food, so it needed that whole Middle Eastern area to produce grain and feed its growing empire. So it's a strategic place, again, not only the culture, but the geography into which Jesus was placed. And the job of the Romans was, well, basically just to keep things down. The Roman governor would be there, to essentially keep the peace, to ensure order, ensure there was no uprisings took place, to collect taxes, and to effectively maintain Roman rule. And that was where Jesus found himself, right into this culture. And when you read the term Son of God in your Bibles, well, you tend to think of it through, a, through these lenses, don't you? You've heard, you've heard about Jesus before, you know he's the Son of God, you know he's the, the one who declared himself the Son of God. But actually, in Jesus' time, many people would have heard that term differently. They would have said, actually, that's Octavian. Or that's anybody who comes through the divine family line of Caesar. And so when Jesus started going around declaring himself to be the Son of God, and when, he said, when people said he was the Son of God, he was in direct challenge to the Roman authority. He wasn't upsetting the church. He was challenging the the ruling authority that was present 
in the culture at the time. Because Augustus Tiberius Caesar was the son of the divine Augustus. He was the ruling emperor when Jesus came to being. And so we get some better understanding of how subversive and rebellious Jesus was when he declared himself the son of man, the son of God. It wasn't just a religious term like we hear it. It was in direct rebellion against the prevailing empire. Does that make sense? But like you or me saying, going out to the street saying, I am the prime minister. I am the prime minister. Follow me. I'm the prime minister. And that's how treasonous what Jesus was saying in that culture was. He was coming against directly the ruling authority. The second element in our perfect storm is the story of Israel. This story had been building pressure and energy over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's hard to imagine today what it's like to live in the sort of story that the Jews lived in. They lived in this story that was, went back thousands of years of history, and, and I'm not going to say legend, but their stories were enshrined and retold and retold. And they lived inside this huge story. The biggest story we've lived inside in the West is probably the story of progress, or supposed progress. Uh, a guy called, um, I've got his name here, Herbert Butterfield, he came up with this idea of history called the Whig View. It was to do with the Whigs that were worn in Parliament. And so the Whig View of history was things will get better and better and better, and eventually we'll be freer and more liberal, and be, this utopia will be formed. Well, if you've seen the news recently, that's not exactly how things are playing out, is it? But that, that story of Western progress is probably the closest that we, you and I can get to understanding the sort of story that the Israelites, the Jewish people, lived inside. They lived inside this huge story, and they saw themselves at the leading edge of that story. They were the people of God. They were the history makers. They were moving forward into all that God had promised them. And they'd lived this story for years and years and years and years. And there was a high degree of pressure and hope and expectation that this story would be fulfilled. It's like a great costume drama. Imagine them retelling the stories of Abraham and Moses and David, these great legends, these heroes, these figures. They would tell these stories to each other in private and in public. And they had, had great festivals to, to celebrate them. And they believed this story was going to come to a climax. It was going to come to a climax soon. Because hundreds of years had passed and they were sure that God was going to come and set them free and save them and deliver them and do everything he had promised. And there was great energy in their story. And yes, there had been many setbacks and many disappointments and they often told their stories with rose-tinted glasses. And the Exodus really was a disaster for them, wasn't it? Only two of the original people crossed over into the Promised Land. But they would tell that story with passion because it was when God delivered them from the great oppressor, Egypt. And so whereas the Romans tended to look back at a thousand years of the empire being built and their golden age and their celebration of that, Rome's at the peak or the zenith of its story, the Jews looked forward to their story being fulfilled. They were looking forward to the time when God would come and do everything he said he would do. And they were fulfilled. He would fulfill all the things he said, all the things he promised. And both promised this golden age of peace and freedom and justice. So the Roman story and the Israelite story were coming together in a great collision historically, 
centered on that Middle Eastern area. And the great thing about the Jews was they kept their stories alive by telling them, retelling them over and over again, telling their stories to each other. And the biggest story they told was the story of the Exodus. And this was enshrined in the Passover. Now we've got communion today. It's a very small, essentially a very small thing we do in terms of time. But for them, the Passover event was a huge event. And it enshrined the Exodus story, the liberation of God. It was retold and retold and retold, and it kept the story alive. God was going to come and set them free again. He would free them from the great oppressor. They had been impressed by the Egyptians, they had been impressed by the Babylonians, and now they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. But God would have his day, and he would come and set them free. And they were expecting a royal deliverer, a Messiah, to come and overthrow the Romans and deliver them. And so can you see the pressure building? This isn't just meek and mild Jesus walking into a country garden scene. This is Jesus being born into this incredible pressure cooker of the Roman story and the Israelite story. And then, well, we have the hurricane, the wind of God. This is the final piece in this great storm that is beginning to form over this area. The hurricane wind of God begins to move in with God's purposes and God's plan. and begins to supercharge the whole environment. This collision between this evil pagan empire and all this hope in the story of Israel. And into this comes the un... What should we say? The unexpected, the unpredictable wind of the move of God in the form of Christ Jesus. And Jesus picks his moment. He decides to ride into Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, and he rides in on a donkey. And he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah, who speaks to the coming king. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus deliberately chooses to increase the pressure, increase the storm, by riding in at the very zenith of the Jewish story, the Passover meal, the Passover celebration, the story of the Exodus, and he rides in declaring himself king right in the face of the Roman Empire. See, God comes in such unexpected ways, doesn't he? The Israelites have been waiting, hoping for hundreds of years for a Messiah. And they're expecting this warrior king to come and overthrow the Romans and to do all that God promised. But here comes Jesus, humble, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy. But they'd, they missed him in so many different ways. He said to the Jewish leaders, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so Jesus was coming in this unexpected way. N.T. Wright puts it in this form. He says, The hurricane of divine love met the cold might of empire and the overheated aspiration of Israel. 
And only when we reflect on that combination do we begin to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. Only then might we begin to understand how it is that the true Son of God, the true High Priest, has indeed become the King of the world. And this gives, gives us a, a whole new context to understand the person of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to begin to use this lens to look at the public ministry of what Jesus did. And hopefully, we can get a different view than the lenses we've used before when we look at some of these events in Scripture. Because from the moment Jesus began to minister, he was determined to bring the storm to a head. He was confronting the expectations of the Israelites. He was confronting the oppression of the Romans. And he was bringing in the kingdom of God. So how do you see Jesus? How do you see him? Do you see him as a friend? Do you see him as a companion? Do you see him maybe as a healer? Do you see him maybe as somebody you belong to? What are the lenses that you've been using to view Jesus through? See, if we study the Gospels intently, we're faced with this extraordinary man who was rebellious, courageous, dramatic in his story. He'd come to bring the kingdom. He'd come to be king. King of our lives, king of the whole earth. The kingdom was coming, and here was the king. And it wasn't a Roman king, and it wasn't even an Israelite king, the way that they saw the king coming. He was a different sort of king, and he brought with him the wind of God. And some of the challenge that he brought then, he still brings to us today. Do we receive him as king, or do we just receive him as friend? Or do we receive him as a religious leader? How do we receive him? Because at the very essence, what Jesus does, he commands us to give up our dream and take his. I'll say that again. At the very heart of who he is, King Jesus, he commands us to give up our dream and receive his. Because he's coming to be Lord over all. And that's what he began to invite his hearers into. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Receive the kingdom. Receive the king. And that's, at the simplest, what Jesus is all about. Jesus is the coming king who says, will you let me be king in your life? Because the Bible story is the story of God becoming king over all humanity. That is what the story is all about. God becoming king over all humanity. And he does it through the person of Jesus. And he says, will you let me reign over your life? So what would it mean for you, for me, to let Jesus be king of our lives? What would that look like? For me to give up my dream and take his. What would it look like for Jesus to be in charge? 
Because that's the question we have to face if we really want to follow him. What's it look like for him to be in charge? We all face storms, don't we? We've all got different elements in the storms of our own lives. You've got different prevailing winds and gales and forces at play in your life right now. And these forces will be buffeting you in different ways. But what does the wind of God look like for you right now? If we had a three-dimensional picture, we could put a third, sorry, a fourth form in here. Because underneath all this, there is a whirlpool of evil that is trying to suck you down. The Bible talks about an entity called the Satan, which means the accuser of the brethren. Or Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Whatever term you use, it describes an evil entity, an evil person, who is seeking to suck you down away from the presence and the purposes of God, like a great whirlpool that we can't show on this screen today. So not only is the, is the wind of circumstance buffeting you, but you're also being buffeted by an evil force that is trying to pull you away from God. And the challenge in the middle of the storm is how do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Jesus walked out into the storm, didn't he? must have been extraordinary to see Jesus walk out into the storm. And he quietened the storm. He took command over the wind and rain. And that was a a symbolic demonstration, not just in the natural world, but in the spiritual world, that Jesus was coming to reign over everything. He was coming to fulfill all the hope. So we're buffeted by these storms. They threaten to drown us. They threaten to overwhelm us. They threaten to confuse us. But as we get a better view of Jesus, then we can recognize him in the storm. We get a deeper, fuller, better understanding of who he is. Because Jesus endured the storms for you and he endured them for me. And he went to the cross in humility and obedience that you and I could fully enter into all that he's got for us. And it's not just about feeling comfortable in church. It's about being agents of the kingdom. Because Jesus said, I'm going to use you to take forward the kingdom. I'm going to use you to extend the kingdom. And you can't build the kingdom, but you can build for the kingdom. Your life can be something that adds to the work of God, that lets God flow through you and bring about this kingdom mandate, because God is becoming king. Whether we choose to recognize that or not, God is becoming king. And Jesus is ruling. And he's doing it in the lives of individuals across the whole face of this earth. And when he gets a hold of you and he gets a hold of me, we become become kingdom agents. We live differently. We start not to live for ourselves, we live for others. We start to pour ourselves out on behalf of others. We start to invite foreign students around for afternoon tea. Even the simplest thing is the extension of the kingdom mandate that Jesus set in motion in that first century. So I want to encourage you over these next few weeks to look more closely at Jesus, to not let the wind and the waves and the buffeting that's experienced in your life at the moment take your eyes off him. The Roman wind might represent to us now, it might represent the wind of culture. There's an incredibly powerful culture. We've talked about Babylon in Revelation, that description of the culture that we're in. 
and the, and the words come out. And somehow we have to find the space where we are, we're in culture, but we're not off culture. We're not called to be weird or odd or separatist, but we are called to be different. And so how does your life, how does my life look different from the lives around me because Jesus is in me? How does it look different? What's the distinctives in me that are worth telling someone else about? Because we become agents of the kingdom. So if, if culture's the Roman Empire in your world at the moment, well, the story of Israel might be the religious expectation in your life at the moment. Maybe church has always looked a certain way. Maybe religion has always looked a certain way. Maybe Christianity has always looked a certain way. But there's a wind of God that's moving across the face of the earth. And he does what he pleases. And so maybe as we think about that story of Israel, maybe we say to God, help me. Help me take off my glasses and to put on yours. Help me see what you're doing by your spirit. Help me get fresh revelation. So lastly, what might the wind of God look like for you at this time? One of the questions you'll find that I will ask you if I spend some time with you, I'll say to you, what will I say to you? Some of you fall foul of this question. What's God doing in your life at the moment? Most people go, oh, caught, banged to rights. I would hope as a people of God that you would have a sense of what God is doing in your life at any one moment. It might not be a very spectacular thing. It might not even be um, a thing that you're proud of. But I would hope at any point in time you could say, I feel God is doing this in my life at the moment. Because Jesus, when he left earth, he was no longer confined by his physical body. He left his spirit with us. So His spirit is with you all the time. You're journeying with God all the time. Through everything you do, you're journeying with God. You're in God's story. And so at any point you can say, yeah, I feel God is doing this with me at the moment. I feel God is doing this with me at the moment. And so I'd encourage you, you know, this week say, God, what are you doing in my life at the moment? What are you saying to me at the moment? It might be like Julian shared. It might be like, you know, I need to get some stuff sorted. I recognise some things in me that I need healing What's the wind of God look like for you at this time in your life? What is God saying to you? Because remember, he does move in unexpected ways. Jesus said the wind blows where it pleases. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effect of the wind. And I love to see the effect of the wind of God in people's lives. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.